Hey everyone, welcome to episode 337 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I welcome back one of the most legendary landscape photographers of our era, William Neal. You may recall our first discussion way back on episode 171. However, William has accomplished a lot since then, including publishing a new book on portfolio development. We discussed that subject at length, as well as his new book, Yosemite Sanctuary in Stone. We also recorded a juicy bonus episode for our generous Patreon supporters, where we discussed the implosion of Outdoor Photographer Magazine, where William wrote a column for over 20 years. Without further ado, let's get to this week's conversation with William Neal. All right, William Neal, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me back. It's been a yeah. a little bit, so nice to uh, chat with you again. Yeah, and this time we get to see each other's face. Yeah, and we probably get to talk to each other more than we got to in Yosemite, out of Yosemite, because we were busy teaching. Yeah, that was... I, I wish I had a lot more time to talk to all the all of the legends that were there, yourself included, but, you know, John Sexton and, God, it was just such, a, such an incredible experience. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> well, for people that don't know you, which probably is very few people, I would assume, but why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is William Neal. I live in uh, just outside of Yosemite. I've lived here since 1977, so I came here from Colorado, from Boulder, uh, just out of college and worked for the Park Service and ended up working at the Ansel Adams, uh, Ansel Adams Gallery in the early 80s and got to know Ansel. And then um, I left the gallery in 1984 and I've been a self-employed landscape photographer since then. So that's, uh, that's what I call endurance or stupidity or something. <laughs> And every year on Ansel's birthday, you post a picture of you and him on Facebook where you have this epic beard and this hair and you're standing next to Ansel and it's always, always puts a smile on my face. It's red hair. You have to mention the red. It's an, right. I am a redhead, even though you can't tell anymore. <laughs> makes yeah, yeah, yeah. Me anyway. Nobody else. Right, 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 right. And I'm, I'm guessing... Uh, working with Ansel must have had a huge impact on your journey. Yeah, yeah, it did. And, and um, I got to be, since I worked at the gallery and he ran workshops, I got to listen to him lecture. I got to hang out with him. But also uh, all the photographers he brought into the workshops were world famous photographers. And so I got to hang out with them and hear them speak and look at their work, go out in the field with them. And a part of that workshop program was a whole group of assistants that were fantastic photographers, up-and-coming photographers. So it was a whole sphere of influence, as I call it, that, um, that I got exposed to for nearly five years working at his gallery. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think what's interesting is I think when most people think of Ansel Adams, they, they have a a litany of classic Ansel images in their mind and Moonrise over Hernandez or Moon and Half, half Dome. Moon and Half Yeah, you know, the, but they're all, like all the ones that people think of, they, they tend to be grand landscapes. And then most of your work, I tend to think of as being very intimate and unique in nature, which is a very interesting contrast. Yeah, I mean, what Ansel's known for is not necessarily what he did all the time. It's just what got, got the most attention. So if you look in uh, an early book he did when I worked at the gallery was Yosemite and the Range of Light. If you go through that book, it's not all scenic landscapes, grand landscapes. Hmm. So if you delve into Ansel's whole body of work, you'll see much more variety than, than you would just the, the social media blasts or whatever you've looked at that, that gets the most attention. But if you look a little further, there's... A lot of things he did, uh, just thinking of, you know, little fern springs in Yosemite or, or um, forest details that were really, you know, intimate landscapes. 
that, that, style yeah. of, that style of photography has been done for a long time. But somebody should actually do a book as you know, like an intimate landscapes by Ansel Adams, just to right, just to put a crowbar in the wheel, so to speak. <laughs> I like I like it. Uh, well, man, what a great what a great segue for this particular episode. I had three very distinct topics that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I want to talk to you about your new Yosemite book, uh, your portfolio development book, and Outdoor Photographer Magazine. And I think it makes sense to just go in that order. Um, So let's start with Yosemite. I would be curious first if you could tell us what the impetus was behind your new book, which I think you've titled Yosemite Sanctuary in Stone. Correct, correct. Well, Yosemite has been my sanctuary for... 46 years. And um, I've previously done a book on Yosemite called The Promise of Wildness. And that was published in 1994. And it was in print for most of 30 years. And it's recently went out of print. And I've been wanting to do a, a, a book that features my best work, my favorite work for a long time. I started um, proposing this book project in 2006. I went back into my emails and found uh, an email. I I had a contract offer from Sierra Club Books at that time, and we were negotiating the contract. and And they got to the, you know, the meeting where they made a decision, and and somebody said, you know, he has a he has a book on um, on Amazon, on Yosemite, which was the one I just mentioned, The Promise of Wildness. And they said, nope, we're not going to do it if he's already on Amazon with the Yosemite book. So, you know, I sold at that point in time, uh, over 10 years from when the book came out, I was, I was probably selling 10 a year from that book. They, you know, it didn't, wasn't selling. I mean, it went into a lot of printings over that amount of time, but it was really by a small local publisher that didn't have the reach, of, you know, of a normal publisher like Sierra Club Books would. So to me, it was, it didn't make sense, but, but. You know they're putting out the money, so they 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 yanked it. And uh, ever since then, I wanted to finally get around to doing it. And I had written the proposal to them, very much like what I ended up creating that's coming out this fall. So through experience, time and experience, I had a lot more work. I had new work, so it wasn't just republishing work that's been out there before. I have this will be my 14th book, so you know there there are several books that have you know, a lot of Yosemite images in them. And so uh, right. it's, this was an effort to make it a more personal selection and to make it a, um, a lot more current. There are a fair amount of what you might call classic images. Like in, behind me, there's a photograph of the sequoia trees. You know, that's in the book, but it was, it was taken in the early 90s. But it's, it's just something that, that fit well in, the, in, the, in my book editing. So I've been working on that project in, in concept for 15 years, and in terms of beginning to edit, maybe close to two years. As you, I think you know, I'm working with Jerry Greer on this project, and I first started talking to him about doing this uh, three years ago. Okay. So I had, fortunately, I had a couple other books come along that I had to work on. So the portfolio book you mentioned is one of them. I got got around to doing this project. I learned a lot from uh, Eric Bennett, his process of making his book, helping uh, him with that. I learned how uh, I learned about Jerry from him. I learned about Jerry from your interviews with him and Wayne. And I just slowly got up the courage to do it myself. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. (laughs) It's a lot of work. I mean, it not only obviously it's it's a huge commitment in terms of time and effort, but it's also a pretty big financial commitment, but I feel like you're one of the few people I can think of that that particular aspect of it wouldn't be that big of a challenge because you do have name recognition and a lot of reach. So, well, I launched the uh, thank you, yeah, and I I launched the uh, a pre-order campaign about six weeks ago, and it's and the book is fully funded. Sweet. So I I, <laughs> I didn't expect it to go so well, but but. Uh, I wanted to have the assurance of, you know, of it, it being profitable or at least cover my expenses. 
I kind of used a, a Kickstarter type model in something I'd done with a couple other books where I offered kind of higher value for the book in terms of uh, light and landscape book I did with uh, Rocky Nook. Uh, I talked them into doing a hardbound edition of it. And so that was my uh, hardbound print plus prints packaging that went well. And that was also done with my retrospective book that was published in England. And so I'd, I'd seen that it could work. And, but I, I didn't know for sure. I'm not without doubts. For, that's, that's for sure about <laughs> what, whether, I, whether I could pull this off. So as I've been editing the book, I, I'm posting on social media and kind of uh, giving some insight to my, my editing process, which ties back into the portfolio book. Anyway, it's worked out well. It sounds like you have a mixture of old images and new images. Do you have a feeling for how many images are taken with, you know, like a digital versus film? Or yeah, I, n I haven't calculated that yet. I think it's probably maybe a third four by five and the rest digital. I think at least half of the book was taken in the last 10 years. And the earliest photograph in the book was taken in 1977. So we have a, oh, wow. so we have a bit of a, a range there. So I wanted to to give voice to you know a, a pretty wide period of time, uh, and still make it personal and still make it fresh. That it's not a bunch of photographs that have been seen before. That somebody who bought the book would be see a fresh view of Yosemite, kind of, including a few classics and a few broader scenics. So it spans. 45 years of image making. Yep, yep. That's amazing. I mean, I was born in 1978, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, That's pretty the, cool. Yeah, when I, sometimes I'll post an image where, where it was taken a long time ago and people will chime in and say, you know, I wasn't born yet or, you know, those sorts of things. And it's, um, you know, it's rewarding for me, but hopefully it's a lesson in, in perseverance you know, whatever, yes. whatever topic you're passionate about, um, you know, that, that given time and focus and, and, and grace to allow yourself to grow and evolve and take breaks and have down times creatively, you know, you have to, you have to be kind to yourself and, but also motivated. You're waiting for what's next. I don't really get very upset about when I don't find things to photograph. My passion for nature is so great. I don't care if I make a photograph. Is the that's what everybody says now. I don't care. If, you know, of course, I want to take a great photograph when I go out. But the experience is primary. And I, when I'm out there and jazzed about something, which is just about everything, I'm um, right. I'm you know I have to zero down. At, at my age, I'm I get to be pretty selective, especially in Yosemite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a nice sunset, but. I have better ones because I have a I have a mental file of everything, not everything, but a, a long range of work. That's another picture of half them. Oh, I have a better one. Well, you know, I usually go for it and try something out, and uh, then I go back and look at all those other pictures of sunset on half them, and I go, wow, that's I got better. <laughs> that patience thing I think is important. Uh, I've, I'm curious, thinking back to like the 80s, early 80s, was there any part of you that even thought that you would be still making images 40 years later still? Sure. Yeah, okay. No, I, I think by... But you weren't like, you're like, oh, I'm going to have 15 books. <laughs> well, I was very attracted to books, especially the Sierra Club exhibit format books, and I was highly inspired by those uh, Elliot Porter's a place no one knew. Philip Hyde did great books with the Sierra Club, and and I would read the introductions to those books by the great David Brower, who was the president of the Sierra Club, would talk about you know how the book came to be, and he would say, "Oh, well, Phil Hyde came in and showed me some photographs, and we decided to do a book." I said, "Yeah, that sounds sounds kind of unbelievable that it would be that easy, but <laughs> but you know somebody." had the idea like um, they were going to build a dam, you know, near the Grand Canyon and, and uh, David Brower would get up, 
get motivated to publicize that. So he would pull in a photographer like Phil or, you know, other photographers to show the art of the place and and the the scope of what could be lost and, and those those books got me fired up to keep doing books. So my first book was in nineteen ninety. You know, it was fairly early in my career and it's went into nine printings and hmm. did very well. Uh illustrating the words by Rachel Carson. It's called The Sense of Wonder. But it was published by the Nature Company, which was a chain of stores all over the country. Hundred and sixty stores in malls. And it was all about nature. And uh so I had this this um, kind of venue for for my work through through them, along with Galen Rowell and um, Joe Holmes, photographer you might or might not know. Actually, we should talk. Yeah, we should talk, toss him in on that list when we get to the end here. Oh, um, I did one with him and John Sexton oh, yeah. and Michael Strickland. Oh no, I have to go see that. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, it was a wild ride. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Joe in particular. Yeah. Joe in particular has a lot to say. Oh yeah, he he's one of those people that if you get him started, it's game over. <laughs> All right, well, exactly. Moving on. Yeah. So in your book, uh, thanks again for sending over kind of a preview of it. Um, you you kind of talk about being inspired by the Zen influenced photographer Minor White uh, while photographing Yosemite. And I was hoping you could maybe explain what that inspiration looks like and how it informs your photographic process. Well, it's really pretty simple. It's just a, a, a Zen approach of being, uh, thinking of yourself as a receptor rather than a, an aggressor. So if you're going out and expect to stand here and take the picture at the exact right time, and you know, you're kind of locked into a, a formula, and then lots of people talk about this. It's not new, but um, going out for the, like I said earlier, the experience, seeing what happens, seeing what you respond to, and not letting plans and, and preconceived ideas uh, rule, rule the day. And sometimes, you know, I'll go up to Yosemite, and the dogwood are out, the waterfalls are booming, I'm going to go photograph. I could say, well, I want to be at this place at this time to do such a shot. And it may, it may come that together that way, and it may not. But I'm not, um, especially since I have access to the, the park. It's, you know, if I miss a day and you know I get there at the wrong time, or it's too windy, or too sunny, or too cloudy, whatever, then I know I can come back and, and try again. Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, that's a huge part of what I've shifted towards in the last five years myself, and. It, I, I just can't stress enough how much more enjoyable photography is for me after making that transition. And, of course, I'd like to say my photography has improved as well. And just my overall outlook and attitude when I'm in the field is improved. And my mood is increased. And I'm just a happier person overall. So I think there's so many benefits to that style of photography that it's to me I, I just could never go back to being rigid about you know oh I have to get this shot at this time and you know of course like you said I might have an idea of, of an idea of oh like hmm, I wonder if sunset might look good over there but you know between here and there there's like about 300 photographs that probably probably will work <laughs> right you just have to be open to seeing them yeah it's it's, it's also just time in the field if you love being out there and you're out there enough, you know, things happen. So as Galen always talked about, you know, his photography being interactive, it was, it was a sport in a way, you know, but other people like myself tend to be, I'm not climbing peaks and I'm not trekking into the, into the back country anymore, but I can walk out in the meadow in Yosemite where lots of people have photographed and, and enjoy it, first of all, and see things that I hadn't noticed before, even over four decades. And and kind of enjoy that fact and a photograph comes together. Awesome. I'm curious for you, when you go to a place you've never been to before, or you maybe don't have a lot of opportunity to make images there, do you still have the same approach or is it modified in any way? No, it's pretty much the same approach. I just know that I'll find something that I get thrilled about wherever it yeah. is. 
and you know a, a place uh, I don't know Acadia National Park a place I used to teach workshops and it's it's a place you know I don't know it like a lot of people do but it's a small little park and and you can get out there and and um, enjoy it and still you know find unique images I had no problem finding unique images even if I hadn't been there before because you know, I'm looking at a, a generally a smaller scale, an intimate landscape scale, and and so you know, you you notice those leaves, I notice that leaves, you notice those tree trunks, I notice the other ones, and they're, you know, they're different photographs. Right. So it's just yeah. a selective response, and and the trusting your instincts is a huge thing. Like, yeah, I'm supposed to be photographing boulders splashing at the. Uh, Otter Cliffs Beach or something where everybody photographs and I park my car and, and uh, I get out of the car and there's a patch of uh, bunchberry dogwood turning green and red. And so instead of going down at the beach to photograph the, the scene, uh, the iconic Acadia scene, I'm photographing, you know, a little group of uh, dogwood. Right. And all the people there like, hey, the photo's down there. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think people that I work with usually know that they're going to find something different than the usual thing. At least, uh, like you said, you know, something along the way you find. And I, yeah. when you find spots like that, like I photographed this group of dogwood in, in the fall, you know, during workshop and... And then uh, was working on a book on New England and, and came back in the, when they were in, in bloom in uh, early June, I guess it was probably. Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'd like to see what those dog would look like in the spring, especially if they're in bloom. And, you know, I pull up to the turnout and there they are. It's like, oh, and it happened to be this perfectly dense, nice, flat uh, plain of of flowers like you could you couldn't have designed it better to to photograph uh, what you said earlier about trusting your instincts we should emphasize that because um i was looking through the the preview of the book you sent over to me and there's an image that stood out very as plain as day to me that surprised me quite a bit that it was an image it was very bill neal but it's an image that i probably would never ever take because i would walk right by it because it didn't it doesn't stand out obviously but it's clear to me that you trusted your instincts and went with it and what it is is it's um there's a stone wall mm -hmm. and in front of that stone wall there's tree trunks yeah and the stone wall and the tree trunks are the exact same color mm -hmm. but the only real difference is they have different textures and most people, I think, would walk right by that and be like, "Oh, that's, like there's no con, there's no color contrast, there's no, like even the light was very even." So, but it works so well just because the only thing that's different is is texture. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a special spot, and in fact, um, when I took that photograph, I'd never seen any photographs of it before, and I I was thrilled that I had found something, sort of as you described, something really unique and different. And then I discovered, you know, a year or two later that John Sexton had taken the, basically this one photograph in black, in black and white. So that helped a little bit. And then uh, another <laughs> photographer who's also represented by the Ansel Adams Gallery also photographed this, that tree. And I, I was, uh, won a competition. And I wouldn't have seen it otherwise probably because I didn't know him that well. But it, it was actually uh, discouraging because mm. when I took it, I felt like I had really discovered something magical and it is magical and then um found out i wasn't the, the first to be there and, and do the basically the same composition and it's on a very uh well-traveled trail and i think you saw the photograph next to it you know and it's the same tree about 15 years later and it was taken a different time of the year one is more green one is late, like late summer where it's all brown more the lichens are all dried up and that sort of thing. And, and I thought it was one thing about living in one place, you know, you revisit things and, and see. And I like the play of putting the two photographs on the same spread that mm. kind of if you look at the, the, the dates on it, you see, well, you, your, your copy didn't have the dates. But when the book comes out, you'll see the dates and you can see that I came back and people can, you know, 
decide which one they like or they love them both or or hate them together or whatever it's, <laughs> i I've, I've tormented over all these pairings quite a bit so i'm justifying this one out loud because i because i did torment myself over it your book is just it's filled with a lot of what i would describe as kind of mundane subjects that have been masterfully composed and presented to showcase that there's more to the, than meets the eye when it comes to uh, things that are mundane. And I'm curious how others might adopt a similar approach for making such beautiful and evocative images, especially of objects that most of us just walk right on by day in and day out. Well, I would say go for a walk and enjoy yourself and see what you see. And, you know, if you are inclined to pull out your camera, you know, you, you're you know, you're onto something. You know, if you're trying to develop a portfolio, like 40 years in Yosemite, 46 years, you know you're, you're uh, building a body of work. And so you are not going to um, describe the, f- the place with one photograph. But if you look at it as a portfolio that um, gives many facets of a place, then... You know, if you're leafing through a book or an exhibit or online, you know, you, that's a part of Yosemite I've never been to, or that's a, something I would have walked by. Depending on how, you know, what your thoughts are about describing a place, you could put in a certain percentage of wider views that kind of give you the context, like I did in this book, because there's, there's wider views that show you the cliffs and different seasons and all those things, and you can't think that you're going to tell the story with one image, but give yourself the, um, the leeway with a theme in mind that you can build a depth of subject matter of a, of a place that it describes a place in a poetic way by the accumulation of a walk in the meadow in the winter and you just got grass there you're photographing or there's epic clouds of, from tunnel view. And, and those, those things are... Um, valid to photograph as well and then when it comes to editing you have to think about how much what you want to emphasize so uh, you know I, I might be able to do a whole book of scenic views of yosemite but it would be i don't know too overwhelming to here's the epic view from here and here's the epic view from there and there's El cap in the winter and you know it's it becomes a more personal experience if you think of ter- in terms of adding variety to a portfolio and understanding what you gravitate towards. So, you know, when you start to put together a portfolio, we're jumping into the portfolio book here, but, you know, if you start putting a group of images together that everything is 28 millimeters and, and wide, and you know, if you start to break it up with some smaller views of a group of alpine flowers, you know, you start to get some variety to the, to the description of a place. Description mm-hmm. in a and not just means literal, but po- even a poetic description of a place. Yeah, well, I definitely have lots of uh, questions about portfolio development that we'll dive into. But first, I had one more yeah. question um, about your Yosemite book. I noticed that uh, s- several of your images <clears throat> in the book are of and from iconic locations in the park. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak to your approach to photographing icons and your take on why we shouldn't write them off just yet. Well, I think, you know, it's back to what, you know, what you respond to. You know, if you are at the tunnel at sunrise and there's epic clouds peeling all around and, and you, could, you could not go there, I suppose, or you, you could just enjoy the drama of it all and, and uh, soak it in. And if you're excited by it, then maybe it's worth taking a photograph of. You know, if you take all my photographs of tunnel view over 40 years, you know, I, I compare it down to 10. And actually, that, that would be too much in a book. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I'm you know, doing an exhibit or a book or online portfolio, then, you know, you're forced to decide here's Here's my 10 best tunnel view shots. Which ones um, move me the most and which ones don't look like somebody else's? 
you know, I have photographs that I picked in the book where other people I know, people you know, were there, and and I chose a photograph that that didn't look like what they did. <laughs> to put it simply, <laughs> I mean, because there's right. I mean, that's just one day, but I have a you know kind of a catalog in my mind of of photographs I love by other people, you know, and I might end up at the same place and take one and say, you know, this, this is, I love this photograph of mine, but that other one, it's much better. And I'm not showing mine because, because, um, I'm, I'm very indirectly giving credit to somebody else to have maybe taken it first or taken it better. So I'm, I'm not without a competitive sense of that where, where uh, I want to, I want to have the best one, but if I don't, I don't. And, and, you know, we all kind of run into those things, those of us that photograph around here a lot, and you have to recognize uh, their accomplishment and, and uh, move on. Fortunately, I've been here long enough. I have, you know, a few ones that, that in my catalog of, of photographs from the tunnel that mine stand out in some way, shape, or form. It may, and it may just be the light. It may just be the clouds. Right. It may be a slightly different composition but i mean if you show up the tunnel view and it's got epic light epic clouds like and you don't get excited there might be something wrong with you <laughs> if you've never been there and and even without epic light or epic conditions it's a pretty incredible scene yeah the, so the day i was thinking of i'll tell you later who was there but um oh, i think i know <laughs> the uh, the uh comments that came in on the on the Social media posts were um, interesting because there were there were several people, and you probably also know that say I'd, I never go to the tunnel, and because I don't know if it's maybe they don't want to be tempted or or they just feel like it's been done. So you know I have you know that comment came up quite a bit. Well, it's been done. Ansel did it, so just forget it. So my retort to that is pretty simple. You know what if Ansel thought that? then we never would have had Ansel's photograph in there. So where does it start and end? There's yeah. influence all, there's influence and, and a continuum of time where or you can't just stick your head in the sand, but I completely respect, you know, never going to the tunnel, completely. And I didn't do it, I did it very, very little for about 20 years until I started teaching one-on-one -on -one classes. We'd start the day at the tunnel. And that was a great place to start. It was an overview. People would get a sense of what the valley's like and where El Cap is and where Bridalville is. And it's just a good place to start. And then maybe 50% of the time it has photographic potential. I didn't start photographing the, that place in particular much at all. God, I would say, you know, I missed 30 years of opportunities to... And then 10 years, I started going there a lot because I was teaching in the park, in the valley. So it's just circumstances, too. It's just the way it worked out. I didn't, didn't plan it that way. But I, I didn't want to take postcard pictures. Yeah, it, I struggle with that one, too, especially if I know that someone else has already done it and they've done it better than than any conditions that I have available to me. It's It's like, okay, what's the point? But at the same time... In your case, that particular day, I think you up there with Michael Fry, and based on what I remember seeing of those images, it was like once in a once every ten or twenty years you get conditions like that at the Tunnel View. So, Josh, yeah, you got to get it. Josh was there too. Oh, Josh Cripps, yeah. A couple yeah. of a couple of the photographers, but um, you know, there, there's different takes on that. So even that one day, and different attitudes about doing it. So. Even in editing this new book, I started out doing, you know, like 90% smaller scenes or, or less obvious uh, spots. And then slowly it kind of creeped up a little bit. I have a photograph of Half Dome and the Elm and Cook's Meadow in, in winter. And, and for a year, it wasn't in the book. You know, just like last month, it creeped in. I said, well, my, actually, my wife talked me into it, but... <laughs> A few, a few broader views. I, I realized I didn't have many pictures from the high country, especially um, recent times. So I, I went back and found some uh, old four by fives to to uh, 
resurrect. In simple terms, what do you hope is conveyed by your book? What do people? What do you hope people take away from it? Well, I think the you mentioned this earlier, where where you saw that the book had images that weren't necessarily looking like Yosemite, and just to show people my personal exploration of the place, uh, and the, the title of the book about the sanctuary part is that I could do whatever I've done photographically because I felt like it was in a sanctuary. I was at a place where I was comfortable. I was in a place of that I revere. And so that's, you know, whatever I come up with in that process is valid. It's not like I'm describing a place. It's not a book about the landmarks of Yosemite. It's about a personal, you know, four decade journey in a place. And the, the uh, point too is that, that that type of attitude can be done anywhere. Obviously Yosemite is an epic place to photograph, but if you look at the book, I think you'll see Yosemite in a, in a different way. And uh, when Guy Tall wrote the introduction, we spent some time on Zoom and, and wanted to uh, make a point of, of that concept of sanctuary, of being in a, a place of where you love being, extend beyond a place that's obviously so popular that you can have that same approach uh, in a local state park that nobody's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. You spent enough time there and you learn the seasons and and you make a point of trying to come up with a variety of images in terms of scale, that sort of thing. I think um, the point is that the sanctuaries are all around us, really, what it comes down to. If we choose yeah. to look for beauty, it's there, mm-hmm. whether it's in Yosemite or it's, you know, I have photographs down in Fresno, which is, you know, a lot of concrete, and you know, go to a store and park in front of a uh, Chinese pistache tree and photograph the bark because it's beautiful. You know, and I'm in, in a, I'm not going to spend all my time in a parking lot taking pictures, but man, I love the pictures I took there, isolated right. out of the, the parking lot, and people are looking at me like I'm crazy. What, you know, what are you looking at? Yeah, it's so funny. Like one of my favorite photos that I took in the Redwoods when I went there a couple of years ago was literally from our campsite in a campground, like of this fallen tree that had all this weird moss on it. You know, it's like you just got to be my you just got to be open to finding things everywhere. (laughs) I remember that that photograph. Um, But yeah, I think that's, you know, open to finding things anywhere. what I've kind of learned is that, you know, seeing beauty is, can be, become a daily practice. And, and I, I built a house in a nice neighborhood where there's a lot of nature around, and so that helps a lot. But, you know, if you choose to pull over into a turnout on your way back from work and, and check out a little piece of woods or a, little, a pond or something and get to know it, you know, that, that kind of connection makes the rest of rest of the day better usually it's a yeah and to me it's a tremendous ballast to think that way because i have i have a lot of interest in politics and my first two years of college i was a political science major and so i'm i'm invested in uh current affairs and and get extremely aggravated and stressed yeah i (laughs) I need i need help this is I need this is my my uh, counseling by exposure to nature's beauty. How poetic is that? I love I love it. <laughs> no, it's interesting because I'm sure there's someone listening who's like, well, I would have a bunch of images that I loved of Yosemite if I lived close to Yosemite too. And it's like there's nothing that forces you to live where you live. I intentionally live where I live because I love it here and it's close to my favorite places on planet Earth and I'm willing to pay the premium to make that happen, which means I have to work twice as hard as I would if I lived in another part of the country, but I'm fine with that trade-off, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of lot of stories of of photographers that had other careers that have retreated into the the wilds Guy Tall is a great example of that. 
when I first met him, he was living in Salt Lake. He was wondering what to do with himself, but he, he, figured, <laughs> he figured it out, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say, I cannot picture Gaitel living in Salt Lake City. <laughs> nope. That's a mismatch right there. <laughs> oh, so where can people learn more about your book and get their own copy? Well, oddly enough, on my webpage. So, yeah, if you go to williamneal.com, you'll see the, the bookstore. Learn all about it. One of the exciting parts and uh, that's helped finance the book is the deluxe editions. So um, you get a signed, signed print or three signed prints, depending what you want to uh, put into it. But similar size, small prints are about three times the value that you would get if you bought the book in a print. So it's a, it's a good uh, value if you're interested in, in collecting original photographs. Very nice. All right. Let's shift gears to, to portfolio development. You, I think maybe, what, two years ago, three years ago now, you released a book all about portfolio development. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, why do you see this as such an important skill or approach that photographers should work on, so much so that you created a whole book about it? Well, the, um, the story goes, I, I taught group workshops back in the 80s and 90s. And I had students, and we would go to Acadia and Smokies and Death Valley and Yosemite, obviously. And, and uh, we'd get returned people coming back to the workshops. And, you know, when they would come back, uh, you know, we would ask them the big print to bring prints. And sometimes they didn't bring anything. And we started to encourage them, well, bring something new and what you, I want to see what you've done. Basically, indirectly asking for what progress have you made in my, in, my, right. in my eyes as a teacher. And I went, you know, I did that for 15, 16 years. I stopped teaching for a while, but I ended up teaching for a betterphoto.com, which was a very large workshop program. Uh, people like Tony Sweet and, and Brenda Tharp, and there was like 50 different instructors. And my friend Lewis Kemper got got me going with that. And I, and I had to think about what I wanted to teach. You know, I didn't really want to teach just a how-to landscape photography class. <laughs> and so, so I wrote an eight-week course that is the foundation of this book. So the book was written like 2005, essentially. The lessons were written. And what happened, I taught that course for eight years, and I'd never done anything in, as a teacher that showed such tremendous progress. So people had to, um, had to start looking at their work and try to find themes. And then this is before people were using collections in Lightroom, for example, but they would come up with a theme. Um, you know, it could be, it didn't even have to be nature, but, you know, somebody liked waterfalls. And so they, you know, we would narrow it. I would see an overall body of work, whatever they thought they, you know, had done good photographs of, and then we'd start, well, I see, you know, a trend here, I see a trend there. And then we'd start to narrow down and, and they would uh, progress through the lessons trying to build upon that. So they might have five photographs for, as a core foundation for a thematic portfolio. And then I'd give them assignments to go out and add to it. Okay, so, you know, you have all these photographs at this scale, try a different scale, can you get you know, if, if they could, a different season. And by the time they were done, they were very invested in um, the subject matter because I, I can almost require them to choose something they were passionate about, but also something, they had to pick something that was close by so they could, mm -hmm. could do the lessons for over eight weeks. And then they, they learned to think in themes when they're out in the field you know, I'm going to go add to my waterfall portfolio. All of them were slow shutter speeds. So I'm going to try some with fast shutter speeds and see what kind of, instead of them all being mushy, then, you know, I have some with spray. You know, whatever it is, something like that, whatever nuance in the portfolios we could find to expand upon that helped them think within the context of what they were passionate about, how to make it interesting for them by just experimenting and I'll make it 
interesting to the viewer. And at the end, by the end of the course, they were required to make a portfolio. You know, 20 images over the period of time, they were required to choose a, um, uh, a format to whether it's a book, like they'd lay something out in, in a blurb book, or they would put together an online portfolio. So they kind of had to think in terms of a final product. And for many years, I, I wanted, anybody I stopped doing that course and to move to the book, I just finally got around to pulling it together. And I sent the lessons as they were in 2005 to the publisher. And uh, they were all over that. And, and so we, we turned a, an online course into a book, basically. And you say over those eight-week eight courses, you would see pretty big development in terms of people's not only technical skills, but also just their ability to make better images. Is that kind of what you started to see? Or what were some of the other end results of? Yeah, because of the, of the mostly because of the focus. I mean, maybe technically there was something that might improve, but it was, it was more about editing. You know, like most of us, we all photograph lots of different things. And so, like their initial portfolio would usually be kind of scattered, you know, what, what they had photographed. And, and so... Right. Landscapes. <laughs> We all have we all have limited time on this earth, and we and, and our busy days, and we we have to be selective, and we don't have to, but I, but it helps. It helped them to recognize what they were most passionate about and how they could better express their response to the landscape through a focused approach, and so they they had they kind of had a they had to write an artist statement. So they had to write and think about what they were trying to say. So that was one of the big questions. Here's your photographs. What are you saying? What do you want to say? And um, then they have to spell that out with words and, and back it up with the photographs. What are, what are some of the more common mistakes that you see photographers make when it comes to the presentation of their portfolios, perhaps on their website or, or elsewhere? Well, it's usually quality control. Just, you know, it's very hard for us to judge our own photographs because we have emotional attachments to places and times and experiences. So the the learning to, to kind of turn off the emotions a little bit and say, you know, this, this was an incredible day, an incredible experience, but, but it doesn't live up to my better work. So the, the hardest thing is to create a, a, that quality control where you know what no one photograph is weaker than another that's the ideal you know whether and we we all have trouble doing that so a class like this you know you you got my feedback you know when you go to workshops and get feedback that's where you start to figure out the these are ones people are responding to and and you know from not just a pretty picture but you know creatively emotionally well expressed that you know you start to improve your editing to to tighten things up. So one of you know, I mean, the biggest mistake, and I've certainly, my webpage is, is based on stock photography, so it's really out of control. It was, yeah. it was built a long time ago, and you can go into a subject and see, you know, very inconsistent uh, group of images uh, because of that foundation. But if you're better at it than I am, you would, you know, narrow it down. So if you're looking at a, a portfolio of, your Yosemite images, and there's 50 of them on a web page. You know, people are aren't going to last through that. So numbers do have a play play a factor. You know, if you if you can get it down to a tight 20 or 30, you know, and keep up upgrading that, not expanding the number, but expanding the quality, which is also the process we did in the port in the class. Was this drops out because now you have a better one, right. and that could be from your archive or it could be from new work. Oh, you know, this is where this theme is going and I, I have I have stuff for that. And you remember something back in the in the catalog. And then, you know, you get to the end and you you realize where you you know you you made a big improvement in that group. You know, maybe one image is maybe you expanded and got, you know, made five into a portfolio of ten and that's that might be a perfect size for a box of prints. Right. It doesn't have to be you you know, you made 50 prints or 50 new images that, you know, you forced into a portfolio. Yeah. But quantity does matter. If you're doing a book and, you know, 30 photographs in a book is kind of, 
light. It doesn't really get into the meat of the matter. You know, maybe 50 or 100 is a good good number to think about, but that would be terrible online in a portfolio. Right. Yeah, I struggle with this because I have galleries on my website where there might be 50, 60, 70 images, and I know there's weak images in there that I don't like anymore, but they keep selling. Just people buy a print of it, and I'm like, oh, I can't get rid of that photo because it keeps selling, and it's like the worst because I want to... I want to put it out to pasture, but I also know that for whatever reason, people like that photograph, you know, and that that's where I get caught up is well, like, oh, someone likes it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that's that's okay. You know, we have to make a living. And I, I have a long history of compromise in terms of my photography, line, a line of posters that were published all over the world. And there are just some pretty lighthouse photographs in that group, but there's also... You know, my favorite lava photograph that was quite popular. So, you know, I had, I had lots of commercial compromises along the way. And back to the portfolio book, one of the things I encourage uh, that I see in most people's websites is they tend to be location-based. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's my Iceland and here's my uh, New Zealand or whatever. And so what I try to get people to th- think about is that more poetic way of describing what they're trying to do like um mm-hmm. the the flow of something something with the flow in it about waterfalls where you're using words that are not uh, f- uh location based but uh, thematically it might be processing style like i have a key uh, a portfolio of high key images so i had a few for a long time and then I said you know i'm gonna i'm gonna try to push this further and take images that work, you know, in high key. And I took regular images and, and just processed them that way to, to try to expand that portfolio. So it's a, you, the title makes a big difference. So what I tried to suggest people to do with web pages is to have where I've been section, which has all the, lo- the locations, and then another section of what I want to say. Meditations in monochrome is my black and white portfolio series and that's just a way of describing what you know very broad body of work it's nice if you use some poetry in your titles uh, you can also open up doors to images that you never thought would have go would go together right where all my um, uh, ripple abstracts in one portfolio just as a topic it's something i've been photographing ripples for a long time and there i have such a crazy variety of them and they're kind of, it's kind of interesting to see the variety. And other people, like our friend TJ, has a very focused body of work that's very stylistically consistent and, and powerful in that sense. So the same type of t- subject could be, you know, ebb and flow extends to images and a life. And right. like my ripple photographs don't have that con- kind of tight continuity, but there's... They're a passion of mine as well, and they're, you know, there's another maybe there's another title, the art of water or something, where, you know, it's it allows me to express my, you know, four decades of you know water abstracts or something. So the right. um, if you look at my catalog in Lightroom, you'll see like fifty different catalog directions. Ah, uh, are you using collections mostly? Yeah, like I make a collection set and then I'll put sub collections inside there mm-hmm. any, on different projects I'm doing. Yeah, I like that Sometimes. approach. I need, I need to do more of that. <laughs> mine are, of course, mine are all date and location, <laughs> but that's just because that's how I remember. Like, oh yeah, I took that really interesting image in Yosemite. Um, so I remember where to find it. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's what I did with my Antarctica portfolio that I called I went to Antarctica for five days and I had so many photographs, you know, I, I did a portfolio. I said, how am I going to, I don't even know the names of these places. So, I mean, I did some research and, you know, remembered most of them, but eventually, but um, in the book, they are ordered by, um, they're chronologically and the, the captions are uh, date and time, you know, and, and there's, there's a couple of, uh, and the book is organized by the day, so day one, day two, day three. And, you, and you'll see photographs from the same sunset, you know, like three hours apart because it's 
Antarctica thing. Right. So if you if you were crazy enough to delve into the captions that closely, you would see what I, we experienced on one day from you know over a twenty hour period, and that was that was evocative of the experience to me somehow by having the date and time there. Yeah, that's an interesting interesting way to organize something like that. Um, I'm not sure I'd ever do that. So I'm glad to hear that you did it. <laughs> I thought of doing that for the Yosemite book. I said, just let's start with, you know, 1977 Nin and then <laughs> up in 2023 and just go, yeah. go in order. But I, I didn't. <laughs> well, I'm curious then. No. So when you're browsing um, other photographers' work, like on their website or whatever, what do you see as perhaps an ideal format for presentation in terms of organization, scale, and variety, um, and maybe even like ordering of images? Cause, and maybe I'll give you a second to think about that because I, I think about this all the time and I'm, I don't know why my brain is the way it is. I like things to be organized a certain way. And so like in my galleries, a lot of it is driven by aspect ratio. I don't want a horizontal image next to a vertical image. I want like, mm -hmm. and I usually want three. I want, I want rows of three. So, you know, I've got like three horizontals, three verticals, three panoramics, three horizontals. And then if I have one that's, if I have uh, something that's off, and I'm like, well, I have to find one to get rid of then. <laughs> you know, so. Odd man. What about for you? <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I haven't really done that in that, that way before, actually. I My photo shelter site is, like I said, was built off of a stock photography idea. And it was just, um, um, you know, I, I, I probably played with the order on some of them, especially the ones that I've done ebooks of, um, where I, I kept the same order like the Antarctica book would be uh, chronologically ordered. Um, it, it depends so much on the, the type of web page you use. So I think, I think it's nice to have an easy way to go from a full view to a grid view. You kind of go to a grid view and you see, oh man, this is, this is, I don't know, I'm gonna have fun with this body of work and I'm gonna go see them full screen. You can do that in the, in the uh, portfolio, in the, photo shelter site too, but I don't think many people do it, but there's a, there's a full screen mode where you can just go through all the images, um, on your high def TV, even if, if you plug into your TV, but, um, you know, in terms of sequencing, I, I agree with the, uh, considering the balance in, in an order and Lightroom is a good tool to use that where like, like sequencing a book, you know, when you have two pages up, you think about that. When you have a, a web page, ideally want people to be looking at one at a time. So going from vertical to horizontal to vertical to horizontal, I agree, is very distracting. So, you know, you might pick a set of images that were, like I did in the Yosemite book, say high country or one part of the park or one style of photograph. Or I have a couple of sections of black and white where there's a sense, there's some variety, but compatibility, that's, that's a pretty broad brush, but, but uh, you just have to, you know, if you put it in a collection and you punch on the slideshow function and you look at your group of images full screen, just imagine somebody else looking at your pictures and, and uh, you know, we're jumping around in seasons that maybe that's too distracting. Maybe I'll go winter, spring, summer, fall and kind of flow people through what I place, Yosemite or whatever place, you know, looks like through the seasons. I don't, mm -hmm. have, I don't have a very good answer to that because I don't do it that much. But again, it's trusting your instincts. Like I said, you find a, um, a rhythm by trial and error. You just put, put them up there and, and see how it goes and go back to it the next day and change it again. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting because... Um... One of the things I've become more cognizant of when I'm building out galleries or switching things out is uh, I want to try not to have things that are too similar next to each other mm -hmm. because then it's like, you know, oh, that's just like the last one. 
but then it's but then it's like well if, if if it's just like the other one maybe you should get rid of one of them you know what I mean? yeah yeah you, you have to be tough on yourself but um there's a hundred different parameters like that and we're all going to have different ones so formula is hard to come up with um but like i said back to that trusting your instincts i don't like these two together i don't know why but i don't so right i'm going to shuffle it around in lightroom you know you can move things around pretty easily and i spent months doing that with the yosemite book mm. things that i knew would go together i didn't mess around but i kept going through and trying to find a just a rhythm of two horizontals next to each other and then you know i like these two photographs together and it's horizontal and vertical that kind of breaks up a rhythm but i also made it fairly standardized in the type of border so i like white borders in my books and um you know that that helped kind of standardize it and then you would find um some images that just didn't have a match or that i like so much i didn't want them anybody distracted by another image so I would mm -hmm. isolate out a few images that either I just couldn't find a match to, color, whatever. I have a couple of photographs that are on single pages in the book that just just were so different that they had to just sit by themselves. They didn't they didn't <laughs> they didn't play well with others. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I've talked to some people who uh they sequence it based on the color. So, you know, like stuff that's predominantly red is close to red and stuff that's blue is closer to blue and it kind of goes through that flow of, from you know, maybe cool to warm or warm to cool or and i'm not sure i could ever be quite that meticulous but it's an interesting way to go about it also as well well i found in in pairings for the book is that there were some that had were wonderfully complementary color wise like they really kind of match my wife and I called them matchy matchy and uh yeah you know and and it and it can work and then but if everything in the book is matchy matchy then you're then people are going to go oh god that's just too cute you know it's not it's too obvious and too obvious yeah and um uh -huh. so we found a lot of images that complemented each other that were maybe the same season uh but some were you know two fall images together uh, some of them were taken on the same day. There's one pairing I think of with our friend, Mr. Alex Noriega, who, you know, we, we uh, you know, I took the two photographs that were paired together were taken in like an hour or two apart from the same location, basically the same location. And just for me, it, it's just, they, they visually, they go together, but they go together for me in a nobody would know or care way that, I took those the same day. <laughs> or there's, a, there's another pairing where I took at the same place, you know, 15 years apart of one's a fast shutter speed and one's a slow shutter speed. And, and um, by caption, you kind of see they're the same place. And so you see that they're, you know, very different takes on the same place. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, for people looking up, uh, to find that portfolio development book, I'm guessing that's also through your website? Yeah, and they're, uh, I highly recommend going through Rocky Nook. Uh, they're a great publisher, great to work with. And um, you can use uh, my discount code, Neil40, and you get 40% off. And the great thing that Rocky Nook does too is they have a, a book and ebook package. So the best value is to get both if you're into ebooks at all. And uh, that's uh, when I ordered it, I, I got the 40% off. So. That's the way to go for sure. Yeah, and and you can use that discount for uh, other photographers' books. So, if for some ah. if, if for some reason you want to use my code on Guy Tall's book, right? Yes, it's okay. Wow. So yeah, he's got uh, what three books for the Rocky, Rocky Nook? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Actually, he he helped, he hooked me up with the editor actually, so I have to thank. Nice. Thank guy for that. I might have. I was thinking of approaching him anyway, and I said, "Well, God, I, I bond, might as well get a proper introduction from what one of their established authors." Perfect. Well, I know we promised at the beginning that we would talk about 
Outdoor Photography Magazine, and I think that might be a fun little bonus episode for Patreon, so we'll we'll record that after we're done here. But um, just, you know, last final question for you on the main podcast here. Who do you recommend that we learn more about? Who are some photographers that might be kind of flying under the radar, so to speak? Well, there are a couple of photographers uh, that I've known for a long time. Uh, Lewis Kemper is a photographer who he gave me his job at the Ansel Adams Gallery in 1980, and we've been friends all those years. Um, Lewis Kemper, and then uh, another guy from Colorado, from Boulder, John Weller, who used to work for me and um, is an amazing photographer and environmentalist, extremely um, proactive in the environmental world. Um, I recommend him. And then a couple of, of guys who have been students of mine that have really distinguished themselves. One is Brad Rank, Rank Bradley Rank, and Mike DiMiola. And um, they are uh, excellent and up-and-coming photographers. And I yeah, I'm be very familiar with both of their work, and I like, I like both of their images for sure. I've been very busy. So I have been v- very busy uh, sharing their work. Ah, I don't. I, well, I think it's highly curated. I don't do it just because they're friends or I like them. I don't. I don't put stuff up unless it meets my my uh, criteria. I like it. Yeah, no, I think I think Brad Rank entered some images to NLPA either year one or year two or both. I can't remember, but I remember a few of them. I remember distinctly, if I'm remembering the connection correctly, he had some images where it was like some tree branches that were covered in snow and just really pretty and lots of patterns. And and of course, I'm familiar with Mike Timola because he supports the podcast on Patreon, but he has some great images. I think he's from New Hampshire. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I know Alex and TJ, he's been, he's worked with them and he was at a, a workshop uh, last year with Alex and I in Yosemite. Ah, okay. I to know him in person. Cool. Yeah. Good deal. All right. Well, William, this has been great as always, and I wish you the all the success in the world with your with your books. And even though you've already hit your goal, it's great that you know now you can relax a little bit. Yeah. And hopefully, this will get you a few more. <laughs> that that would be awesome. Yeah. I hope people will visit the website and follow me on social media. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you to William for returning to the podcast and for sharing your wisdom with us today. I really appreciate it, and I feel like I learn something new every time we chat. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can listen to a bonus episode all about Outdoor Photographer Magazine's demise. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen to support the show and to find over 220 bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for your support. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.